Well, welcome uh, everybody to uh, this evening's public lecture at the LSE. Uh, it gives me personal pleasure to welcome John Cassidy uh, here this evening. John is one of that small, talented band of British, British uh, journalists writing successfully for prominent publications in the US. He covers economics and finance at the New Yorker magazine and has done so for the past 15 years. More recently, he's combined this with the role of contributing editor to uh, Portfolio, where he writes a monthly economics column. Uh, two of his articles have been nominated for National Magazine Awards. Uh, before uh, his New Yorker role, he was previously with the Sunday Times, that's the UK Sunday Times, UK Sunday Times. And, uh, and the New York Post. Uh, his first book uh, was about the tech bubble. Uh, it was called dot, 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 com, con, um, not dot com, dot com. Uh, Nobody else uh, got it either. Um, uh, and of course the tech bubble was where all the trouble started. Um, that uh, really we've seen over the last few years, but um, John will be explaining uh, that and more. Um, his first book received glowing endorsements, uh, including from no less than the legendary John Kenneth Galbraith. John has just had his second book published under the title How Markets Fail, The Logic of Economic Calamities, uh, copies of which he'll be signing afterwards. I very much warm to the book's conclusions about the causes of the latest crisis, especially when he places much of the blame uh, at the door of financial economists with their misguided theories and near-religious conviction about the intrinsic efficiency of capital markets. As someone who established a centre for the study of capital market dis dysfunctionality here at LSE two and a half years ago, I for one look forward to hearing much more this evening. So the subject uh, tonight is uh, how markets fail the problem of of rational irrationality. Another mouthful. Uh, please join me in welcoming John Cassidy. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Woolley. Um, I was just saying to Dr. Woolley before we came down, um, I actually applied to LSE when I was 18, uh, which is more years ago than I care to remember. Um, and I didn't end up, I actually got an offer, but I didn't end up coming here because my cousins were here in the 1970s and uh, one of them was actually president of the Students' Union and uh, the other one was also very politically active. And uh, the more conservative member of the pair was uh, the local leader of the Communist Party and uh, his wife was in the Revolutionary Communist Party. I said, was anybody in the Labour Party back then? He said, no, it was way too, you were a reactionary if you were in the Labour Party at LSE in the early 70s. So I thought, I'm never going to be able to match that, having always been a sort of a moderate Labour guy myself. Uh, so I didn't come here. I went somewhere else. Anyway, I'm very honoured to be uh, asked to appear here at the LSE and uh, give, give this speech. It's basically about my book, How Markets Fail, The Logic of Economic Calamities, which I've been working on for uh, several, well, two years now, really, since um, the fall of 2007, when the crisis first began. I've been thinking about writing a book about market failure for quite a long time, actually, sort of even before, but 
I ended up writing a book about the tech bubble, which was obviously one example of market failure. But it always seemed to me there was a sort of market gap there. I mean, there's endless books about market success. In fact, you know, you just take any economics course and, you know, they give you a book about economic success labeled a textbook. But um, there aren't many books about market failure. So I thought, oh, that's not a bad idea. Uh, but I could never really get myself to pull it together until 2007, when obviously we had this epic market failure in the form of um, the collapse of the subprime market and the consequent near collapse of the international financial system. Although, as I was explaining to Dr. Woolley as well, I was out in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and some of the original founders of the efficient markets hypothesis were explaining to me that actually this wasn't a market failure. It was just a perfect example of economic equilibrium. It was just an unexplained recession came, um, and the financial markets were correctly anticipating the recession. As I said to this eminent professor, whose name you would know, but I won't, I won't embarrass him by mentioning it. I said, oh, that's a very interesting uh, theory, professor. Uh, what caused the recession then? And he said, oh, we don't worry about that. We've never been able to explain recessions in economics. <laughs> that's, we can't even agree now what caused, the great, you know, what caused the Great Depression. So I figured that's another sign, you know, that um, some things haven't changed. But I think a lot has changed. And my book is really a book in three parts. The first part of it is um, a history of the free market idea. Where did it come from? I take it all the way back to Adam Smith. Then the second part of the book, which I refer to as reality-based economics, is an alternative economic history um, presenting various theories of market failure. And then the third part of the book is uh, applying that to the financial crisis, various, you know, what economic theories are helpful, what caused the financial crisis. Again, I obviously interpret it as a market failure. So I'd just like to say a bit about each of those in turn. Um, I, um, I'll try and keep it relatively brief so we can have some questions. I didn't prepare a long old written lecture because I uh, always found them very boring myself. Fortunately, I went to Oxford where nobody goes to any lectures. So I, uh, after the first four or five of them, I gave up and just read my way through. But anyway. The idea of the free market. first thing I did when I decided to read this book was go back and read Adam Smith. That's a you know, strange thing about economics. You know, you take up the court, you take up economics, and uh, you think, well, somebody's going to give me Adam Smith to read. Of course, they never do. They just give you a textbook with the sort of modern mathematical theories of Adam Smith. But I thought, well, you know, let's go back and read Adam Smith. So I did. And I think... This book is not an anti-market book. It's been portrayed in some circles as an anti-market book. Um, thankfully, The Economist correctly pointed out that it makes quite a po powerful case for free markets in some areas. I, this is, as I say, not a sort of left-wing diatribe against the market. My argument is just that certain free market arguments have been applied in areas where they don't work, particularly the financial markets. So anyway, going back to Adam Smith, I think the basic idea that um, capitalist economies and free markets produce wealth in a way that other systems can't and that they sort of, in that sense there's some sort of macro efficiency property there, not that all the marginal conditions and all that stuff you learn are satisfied all the time, but just that given the resources in the economy free markets and capital does seem to be able to produce you know, wealth that other systems can't we've seen that most recently obviously in India and China, I think the latest figures I looked up uh, the other night, World Bank 500 million people taken out of poverty in China since 2002. Now, of course, you can have big arguments about the poverty definitions and whether, they, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, but that figure has got to mean something. So, you know, what's the, what's the source of this? 
success, the market success. I said the first part of this talks about market success. And I think Adam Smith pretty much had it right. I mean, there is a specialization of labor, you know, the famous um, pin factory argument. One person making pins can make one a day, you know, for 20, for, it takes, have to do all the different things. If you specialize, 10 people can produce 20,000 a week. Seems to me that everything about that um, still stands up. Second argument, free markets provide innovation. You know, there's a, a basically a feedback mechanism. If you do well, you get rich. If you don't do well, um, you know, your, your business closes. Again, I'm accepting the uh, financial sector here because as Dr. Woolley has pointed out in a lot of his papers, some people get rich in the financial sector for reasons not having to do with uh, producing efficiency, but for other reasons. But generally speaking, there is a sort of feedback mechanism in free market capitalism. There isn't in communism or other things. Technically, you know, the, the businesses face a hard budget constraint, and if they can't meet the budget constraint, they go under. Whereas if you're, a, if you're in some sort of crony capitalist economy or a um, purely capitalist economy, businesses which don't produce good things, you know, can just go on indefinitely. So that's two big advantages of the free market. You've got a um, specialization of labor, and you have um, the incentive structure, which, as I say, what does that do? It produces innovation and productivity growth. Again, I went back and, you know, if you go back to the, the early 19th century literature, the big worry was that everybody was going to starve to death because, um, obviously, the Malthusian uh, uh, question, because population seemed to be growing faster than productivity growth and wages. Why didn't that come true? You know, Malthus and people and Karl Marx, they weren't stupid. They just didn't foresee the enormous growth in productivity, which we've had over the last couple of centuries. And that's, you know, basis of the success of the system, I think. And other communism managed to match that in the sort of early stages, when it was, you know, mechanization and uh, forced collectivization, etc. But once you get beyond that, it doesn't, it didn't, didn't seem to be able to match the sort of innovation in a consumer society that capitalism can. So that, those two still work. And then the third great advantage of the, of the market system, which obviously its latter-day defenders make a lot of, is a, you don't need a central planning system. It's a coordination device, coordinates the uh, activities of tens of millions of people. Now, it may not do it in a perfect, in a perfect way. We've seen, obviously, there are, I'm going to be talking in a while about the problems in the financial sector, some of which arise from coordination problems. But generally speaking, if you've got a free market, you don't need anybody telling you what to do because the price signals tell you what to do. So in the book, I take you back and through Adam Smith and... Um, explain his, um, his views. I then take you on to um, some of the 20th century versions of, of Smithian economics, starting with another LSE, uh, Professor Friedrich Hayek. And Hayek basically made that third argument that I, I was just stressing about the markets being a coordination device because the prices act as signals. Hayek, as I don't know if they teach anymore at LSE, but you know they should do, he's one of the great old boys, uh, described um, capital, uh, free markets as a telecommunication system and the uh, prices are the signals. That seems to me to be still, you know, hold up very strongly. The problem is sometimes the signals are the wrong ones, but they're still acting as a coordination device. They're just acting in the wrong way if the stock market's overvalued or real estate prices are too high. Everybody's still reacting to prices. It's just the wrong signal. But again, you know, compared to any other system, that, that seems to me to be a... Still true. So that's, that's the good, strong case for free markets, which I, again, nothing in this book says that any of that is wrong. I think it self-evidently is pretty much on the ball, and that's why um, you know, the free market system has um, 
succeeded beyond any others. So then I move on. The problem, as I say, my argument is that those basic ideas then get misapplied or exaggerated or put into context in which they were never designed for. So I take you then through the sort of Chicago school, both the first Chicago school, the Milton Friedman, George Stigler arguments, and then what I call the second Chicago school, which is the efficient markets hypothesis and the rational expectations hypothesis. First Chicago school, again, I think that, you know, some of that still, quite a lot of it still stands up um, because they were basically just reasserting the, um, the Adam Smith view at a, in a time in the 40s and 50s when it had been largely forgotten. Uh, I mean, I would describe myself as a Keynesian, but I think in retrospect, the uh, Keynesian, so the sort of 40s and 50s, underplayed the role of incentives in the economy and uh, the role of free market prices and things like that. So I think when Friedman and Stigler pointed that out, they were performing a, you know, a, a public service, and I think they've been proven to be right. But then came along the second, you know, the second generation Chicago schools, and as often happens, you know, good ideas get uh, exaggerated and um, revolutions get taken to their extremes. Theirs was a counter-revolution, which was taken to extremes and in the form of the efficient markets hypothesis and the rational expectations hypothesis, which didn't basically just say that markets get most things right, it said they get everything right. And that's, I think, where it went off the rails. Um, but as I say, I don't, I go in, I try and give, let these people speak for themselves. I go through their papers and give you a sort of version of it. Then the second third of the book, I um, apply, I go to the critique of the market. Where do, what's wrong with this idea? And uh, it's a sort of broad-ranging part of the book. Um, I'll just go in a bit of it. I start off with um, another English economist who's sort of forgotten these days, uh, Arthur Cecil Pigou, and um, his idea of um, spillovers or externalities, as um, we now refer to them. And uh, I begin by applying that to global warming. I mean, most people think about global warming as a uh, political problem or a technological problem, but ultimately it's an economic problem. The uh, people who are you know, producing the global warming, the polluters, don't pay for it because that's not reflected in market prices. They're reacting to it's cheaper to use coal than it is to you know, burn, um, burn uh, non-carbon fuels, so they're going to do it. The market, again, in terms of in Hayekian terms, the market's turning out, turning out the wrong signals. Because private, we all knew, economists all knew this, markets are very good at aggregating private benefits and private costs but they were very bad at aggregating social benefits and social costs. Um, so again, for an economist, that, that's nothing new, but I think it sort of got forgotten in the last 20 years. Actually, uh, Stern and the Stern Report, I think, did a good job of sort of reminding people that ultimately global warming is an externality and should be thought of like that. So that, you know, things like pollution taxes, they're not really a tax on the market. They're ways of making the market function more efficiently. And that's really what this book is about. I'm, my critique of the market isn't from an equity sort of left-wing perspective. I, I, you can make that argument, and I've made it in various places in the past on equality and things like that, but that's not what this book is about. It's basically a um, critique of the market from an efficiency perspective, saying in certain circumstances the market doesn't satisfy all the efficiency conditions that you, know, you learn when you derive general equilibrium models and all that other exciting stuff you do in your classes. So um, I start off with Pigou, as I say, and take you through, take you through this sort of um, externality. He applied it to railway tracks to begin with, pointing out that um, 
you know, if you have a train going, a new train line through the countryside and it sets the woodland on fire, um, the train company is not liable for it. If you think about it, that's exactly the same as a um, power station emitting uh, greenhouse gases which um, lead to climate change, which somebody in 30, 40, 50 years faces the costs of. Economically, it's exactly the same principle. It's costs which the company creates or some economic actor creates which aren't captured in the market. So you need some way to address that. Again, that's not a controversial thing for an economist to say, I don't think, but uh, sort of got forgotten, I think, in the last 20 or 30 years. Then I move on to um, more the sort of financial markets, which is the sort of nub of the book. And not surprisingly for a book of this type, I guess, I uh, make much of Keynes and the uh, beauty contest theory of investing, which um, seems to me Keynes had most of this stuff down um, intuitively, you know, in, in the 1930s. He didn't convert it into a mathematical theory that could be taught to students, but um, he basically had the idea that a lot of people in financial markets don't look at ultimate value when they're investing in anything. They're looking at what the other guy's doing. They're sort of, you know, rather than thinking of perfect competition, you should be thinking of some sort of game theory that people are playing against each other. You know, if you're running a hedge fund and you're thinking of investing in, um, well, we use the example of tech stocks because I, I use that in the book and um, I've written another book about it. You know, there's two examples. Did the market get, tech market get overvalued because people were stupid and irrational, or did it get overvalued because they were rational? I would argue they did it because they were rational because these guys didn't think that you know, Yahoo was worth 500 times earnings or um, Webvan and all these terrible companies which don't exist anymore were worth tens of billions of dollars. They thought that the prices would be higher in three months than they were when they were buying, so they could then sell. Keynes translated that... Um, idea into the famous beauty contest, which I assume most of you um, know about, but I'll just mention it briefly. Back in the 1930s, there used to be um, newspaper beauty competitions, and they'd have um, pictures of, I don't know how many, maybe a dozen. It was very sexist. It was all women, I think, back in the 30s. And um, readers could vote on who was the prettiest. Now, how do you try and win that contest? One thing you could do, if you were a sort of efficient markets theorist, I guess, is say, who's the prettiest girl? Everybody will agree on that, and you pick who the prettiest girl is. But actually, if you think about it, what you really want to think about is what the average person thinks of as who's the prettiest girl. So you devote your intellect not to working out fundamentals, but thinking what everybody else is going to, who everybody else is going to think is the prettiest girl. That's degree two. Then you can get degree three. You think, ah, I'm a bit smarter than that. I'm going to devote my... Uh, intellect to thinking about what the average opinion thinks the average opinion is going to be of the prettiest girl. And Keynes famously said, you know, I think there are some people who play this game in the fifth and sixth degrees, which uh, is beyond my uh, ken. But I think, you know, that, that was a very profound um, view of the financial markets, which sort of got lost, well, it got buried completely in the efficient markets theory. And I think, you know, a lot goes back to that. Uh, I then... That, so that's on the sort of investment side. It also seems to me that in the financial markets, a lot of the players on the supply side, the sort of banks, the investment banks, um, the uh, suppliers of all these you know, uh, newfangled financial products, they're also playing a game, ultimately, as far as I can see. I mean, it's in, I, I, I cite the example, and maybe I'll read a quick um, passage of it, of uh, Chuck Prince. This is an American example, but... You know, everybody knows Citigroup. 
Citigroup actually was a very um, conservative bank for many years, and Prince himself is a lawyer, Chuck Prince, the former chairman. And um, until 2005, they'd pretty much stayed out of the subprime mortgage market. And he always said it was too risky, you know, Citigroup shouldn't be getting involved. They, had a, they did have a household finance division which did subprime, but they didn't have a massive securitization desk. He thought it was too risky. Then at the start of 2005, um, Citi's board had a meeting. Bob Rubin was the, is the executive director of the board. And um, the board said, you know, we, we're missing out here. Look what Morgan Stanley are doing. Look what Bank of America are doing. Our risk profile is too low. We need to up the risk profile. How, how are we going to do that? And they came to Prince and, you know, they said you need to produce suggestions for how to increase the risk profile and increase profits. Now, at that stage, Prince could have said, um, that's a terrible idea. You know, it's just too risky. City shouldn't have anything to do with it. All the arguments he previously had. But he was under pressure, you know, because these guys are judged quarter by quarter, obviously. And he had a, it seems to me, it was perfectly rational for him, in the, given the incentive structure he faced, to say, okay, let's go along with it. And uh, instead, rather than, um, you know, sticking to his guns, because he would have been out of there in, within a, a year or two if, if they hadn't. He decided to build up the CDO desk and the, sorry, collateralized default obligations desk and the uh, CDS desk and other subprime securities. And the, what's the outcome? Citigroup is a basket case. You know, the government owns, I think, 60% at last thing. And it's, going to be, it's, it's already been dismembered. You know, it's one of the great financial disaster stories of the age. Now, Prince himself, I think, totally knew what was happening there. Uh, you know, the argu one argument would be the guy was stupid. I, I don't think he was stupid. As I said, this is my argument for rational irrationality. And I th I, in the book, I'll, I'll just read it. What's my evidence for this? He um, gave an interview to the Financial Times, actually, back in um, 2007. And um, if you think back to 2007, it's hard to think back, but... Um, Everything was basically going crazy in the credit markets. City was a massive player in LBOs as well as um, as well as um, mortgages, and um, this was July 2007. The mortgage market was already looking like it was cracking, and uh, I think Best a couple of Bear Stearns hedge funds had got into trouble already, and. Prince was in Tokyo on a visit, which is probably how the uh, Financial Times journalist got to him. You can never get to a bank. You know, it's like trying to see the Pope. Seeing the, uh, I know from personal experience, it's easier to get in to see the Pope than it is to see the chairman of Citigroup. But um, when they're abroad, they're feeling comfort upon them to give a few interviews. So anyway, some guy from the FT collared him somewhere and said, um, you know, what are you going to, how, how's your reaction, what's your reaction to the... Um, you know, to the cracking subprime, what do, you, what do you think you should do? So, Chris, but this was, I say, this was the context for Prince's famous interview of the Financial Times in July 2007, in which he said, this is a quote, as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. Now, Prince's reference to dancing in the game of musical chairs, I say, was a remarkably candid description of the situation in which he found himself. Um, Wall Street CEOs, the, were you know blissfully appeared blissfully unaware of the risks they were taking, but this suggests that he wasn't unaware at all. He was playing a game of musical chairs, and whether Prince knew it or not, that was actually channeling Keynes, because if you go to the chapter 12 of the General Theory, you'll find um, 
Keynes's reference to musical chairs, which I'll read you. He talks about how there's no such thing as liquidity in the aggregate because if everybody tries to sell, liquidity dries up. And he says, um, this is the inevitable result of investment markets organized with a view to so-called liquidity. For it is, so to speak, a game of snap, of old made, of musical chairs. A game in which, oh, sorry, a pastime in which he is a victor who he says snap neither too soon nor too late, who passes the old maid to his neighbour before the game is over, who secures a, cha a chair for himself when the music stops. These games can be played with zest and enjoyment, though all the players know that it is the old maid which is circulating, or that when the music stops, some of the players will find themselves unseated. So that seems to me to be a remarkably prescient description of uh, what was happening on Wall Street. Keynes was actually referring to um, investors and uh, the sectors they move in and out of, I think. But it seems to me, you know, it's very similar. You don't, there are basically three explanations of the financial crisis, perhaps four. First one is, it was just all stupid, oh, no, sorry, I'll stick with the first one. First one is, it was all greed. Bernie Madoff writ large. Just a bunch of greedy bankers and they brought down the economy. Now, second, the second possibility is they were all stupid. I call that the stupidity hypothesis. Um, people just couldn't for, you know, they just, suffered from, it's basically behavioral economics. They had disaster myopia, they'd forgotten that things could go wrong. Third possibility, which is very popular on the right and in Chicago, is that it's a government failure. The ultimate source of the problem was the government guarantees to the housing sector, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Community Reinvestment Act. Basically the government propped up the housing sector and that led to disaster. I don't buy any of those theories. I think, you know, obviously there's an element of truth in all of them. There's always greed in financial markets. That's why people, you know, go into financial markets. But the great defense of, um, of free markets, if there is one, that is that it transmutes greed into a socially desirable outcome. In some cases, that's the invisible hand theory. Second, the, the stupidity one I don't really buy either. We're talking about some of the most sophisticated investors and, in, you know, institutions in the world. I mean, there's more brain power on Wall Street, you know, than there is in NASA and the um, Ivy League combined at this stage. All the top graduates go into Wall Street, obviously, as you know. I'm sure it's very similar here. So I don't, I don't think you can say it was stupidity. Um, and I also don't buy the government argument because it was overwhelmingly a private sector phenomenon. I think the government did play a role in monetary policy. I've always been a big critic of Alan Greenspan for popping up speculative bubbles. But I don't think you can blame, the, you know, as I say, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1979 for the subprime crisis of 2007. Well, you can, you can obviously, if you're a, a Republican running for re-election, but um, not if you're a journalist or a sort of academic writing a paper. So anyway, so my, as I say, my alternative is this theory called rational irrationality, and it's basically a theory of um, misaligned incentives. Um, Dr. Woolley said very flatteringly. Um, before we came down here, he said, I think you're doing intuitively what we're doing with equations, which um, Dr. Woolley's got a lot of very interesting work on how you can maintain all sorts of rationality assumptions and still produce bizarre outcomes once you introduce things like agency problems. And I think that's, that's right. And I, I basically run through in the third part of the book, I try to explain in each of the sort of sectors, or the subsectors of the, of the economy, what was going on. Um, I mean, if you just, the subprime, the book's been published called The Subprime Chain. This may be a bit American for this audience, but um, 
given that despite my accent I've been in America for 20 years and uh, that was where it's based I don't, I'm afraid I uh, don't apologize for explaining it because I think it was the ultimate source of the problem um, and the, how I explain it I basically compare it to the this is more local comparison to what happened at London Bridge or the London Millennium Bridge rather remember the London Millennium Bridge when it opened in 2000 and uh, it was uh, opened by the Queen if I remember rightly I was in the US so if I get my details wrong somebody here who remembers it a lot better than I do or is that maybe somebody was there uh, correct me but they had the competition for the uh, Millennium Bridge this very bizarre structure one head bridge opens and immediately starts swaying crazily so they shut it down say oh well maybe it was just you know a mistake and then they reopen it in an hour or so and uh, the swaying gets worse if you remember and they had to shut it down for months and it was a big mystery what caused all the swaying on the bridge was it just a strange air pattern was it something about the design of the bridge and Ovi Averup the uh, construction company who uh, built it brought in a team of engineers and they eventually said no no the problem with it is the way that it's nothing with the design of the bridge itself it's that the design of the bridge didn't take account of how the people on it their, their actions when you uh, when the trouble started basically the bridge itself the way it was designed could sway a little they'd be you know just in response to the wind all suspension bridges are designed to sway slightly in the wind so they don't collapse it's always good to have a little give but as soon as it started swaying a bit people started to move in sync with it you know they move one leg and then move the other and everybody copies everybody else because that's what they're all trying to balance everybody's seeing what everybody else is doing and these small sideways forces get bigger and bigger so what starts out as a little sway and not really a very minor problem after 10 minutes of people you know trying to correct themselves acting perfectly rationally trying to stop themselves falling in the river and uh, you know moving in sync you've suddenly got an enormous sway and it's incredibly dangerous and they have to shut the whole thing down so what the hell's that got to do with financial markets um, well as there's a professor who again used to teach here Hyun Shin at Princeton and uh, I got the analogy from him he said in a paper which he published actually to his credit in Jackson Hole three years ago before the crisis so you know there are very few people who actually published anything useful before the crisis uh, a lot of people have published some useful things after the crisis but he in a sense sort of predicted what would happen not in particulars but he isolated certain problems and you know he says actually that's very like the financial markets because in financial markets are a supreme example of where everybody reacts in everybody reacts to what everybody else is doing and what you can get is a um, small problem can snowball into an enormous problem and I think that's what we saw really in in um, August 2007 when the subprime market started to um, you know implode because the subprime itself is only pretty small I think it's about uh, well, there's, there's various figures go around but it's about a fifth or a sixth of the size of the residential real estate market in the US it's only about a fifteenth or twentieth the size of the stock market again there are various figures most people think it's about a trillion dollars so people at the Fed for example I mean I did a big piece on the Fed they said why didn't they really understand what was going on because they thought well even if the entire subprime market goes down it's only going to be, and they, it's only going to be a 500 million, a billion dollar loss 
in terms of wealth. And that, they figured out, was equivalent to about a 2 or two or 3% move in the stock market, which happens you know, five or 10 times a year and uh, doesn't seem to have any big implications. So that sort of explains why that, that was how the Fed thought of this. But obviously they were ignoring the sort of reaction to that because as soon as the um, subprime market collapsed, all the institutions were trapped with all this debt on their, um, on their balance sheets. Nobody, it was completely opaque. Nobody knew what anybody else had. So the logical thing to do was to immediately stop lending to anybody and to hoard whatever cash you had. So what started out as a relatively small shock to the system, just like a bridge, a little uh, swaying to and fro, within a, in a few weeks, or even shorter than that, had turned into an enormous credit crisis in which basically the credit markets had frozen up, not just, not just um, subprime markets, basically the private credit markets had frozen up. The only thing you could sell were treasury bills. So, of course, treasury bills, they went negative at one stage, the, uh, the yield on them. They actually went negative a few days ago, too, for technical reasons. But that's what you would expect when, you know, General Electric can't issue any debt anymore. Citigroup can't issue any debt. The word blue chip doesn't mean anything anymore because everybody's terrified and nobody knows what is on each other's balance sheets. Now, as I say, if you think about that, it's a signal, again, it's a sort of, the market, instead of sending the right signals, they're sending the wrong signals. And that is a sort of, it's a chronic market failure, which um, I don't think anybody, I don't claim to have realized that could happen. Certainly the people at the Fed didn't think that could happen, or the Bank of England or anywhere. But in retrospect, it is actually, you know, reasonably obvious, and it seems to me it's sort of an endemic problem of the system. It's not just an aberration. Um, as, we, as the city and, the, and Wall Street and the financial sector gets ever more complicated, which that's not going to change, nobody's going to disinvent, you know, stochastic calculus or whatever, um, people are going to come up with these, um, with these complicated securities and um, opaque securities. And I, I think eventually, you know, when confidence is restored, we'll, we'll have another danger, you know, the danger is still there for another... Um, Another blow-up, not necessarily not necessarily in subprime, but in um, in something else. And again, there's nothing irrational or sort of criminal in that argument. It's it's all just individuals acting in what they perceive to be their own self-interest, um, trying to do the best they can, reacting to market prices. Now, I started off by talking about um, Adam Smith. That obviously is the the sort of you know it's the obverse of the. Uh, of the invisible hand. It's, I don't know, somebody in the New York Times reviewed my book and they said, it, you know, invisible hand turns into the invisible fist, which if I'd have been clever enough, I would have thought of, but I didn't, so I'll steal it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that's pretty much um, my thesis. The question arises, if that is what happened and it's all rational irrationality, you know, what do we do about it? How, long, how much long time do we have? If you speak for five minutes. Five minutes, okay. Five minutes on what should be done. So um, I should be able to sort it out in that, right? Um, I think there's two things. I'm not going to go down into the gritty details about whether capital requirements should be 6% or 8% or whatever. There are a lot of people in the world who know a hell of a lot more than that than I do. Um, but I think there are two things. One, the most important thing, I think, and that's the sort of one message of this book, Oh, the most important message of this book 
I think the most important thing we've got to learn is an intellectual lesson. The sort of presumption that the market always gets it right is not only wrong, but hasn't got any sort of logical basis to it. Again, this is not an attack on markets from a, um, a sort of ideological point of view. Um, it's an attack on it, hopefully using the internal logic of economics and, um, and um, you know, rational analysis. And as I say, I don't think there's anything that new in that. Economists, some economists knew it all along, but in the last 20 or 30 years, largely under the influence of A, the Chicago School, and B, the sort of Alan Greenspan, Ayn Rand wing of things, um, it just got taken too far. I know there were good reasons for that, I understand. You know, I mean, communism collapsed. The sort of Keynesian labor butskillism collapsed in the UK, couldn't deal with high inflation. It wasn't really, the, the stage was open for the right to come in with a sort of all-embracing theory, which of course they did. Um, but I, I think they just took things too far. And I think, you know, I sort of compare, I hope that what happens is that the sort of collapse of the banks and Northern Rock, particularly in the UK, from a UK perspective, will come to be seen as a sort of defining moment in the same way in the 70s, the rubbish piling up in the streets was sort of seen as a sort of, um, you know, it was the apotheosis of the sort of post-war social consensus. It had broken down. People were, we weren't burying our dead and there was rubbish 30 feet high in Leicester Square. It's very hard after that for a sort of a moderate Keynesian type to, um, you know, to make a plausible argument. Of course, Mrs. Thatcher came in and uh, history, um, you know, went where it did. But I think in the same way, this should be seen as the sort of apotheosis of the extreme right wing, not even right wing, it, a lot of, it was Gordon Brown who invited um, Alan Greenspan to speak at Adam Smith's, you know, double centenary. I think this view of the, of the uh, free market being extended to the financial markets wasn't a partisan thing. In America, the Democrats were responsible for dismantling a lot of the regulatory system uh, in, in, the, in the 90s. And obviously here, New Labour, one of the first things they did was say, we've got to get on board with the city. And um, you know they were just as enthusiastic about, as that, about that. So that's the sort of big, big picture argument that um, it's an intellectual thing. Don't always assume markets get it right. If Milton Friedman was here, he would say, okay, don't assume markets get it right, but don't assume governments always get it right. Uh, I think that's a fair argument, but I still think, um, you know, the number one thing is don't, it, it's worthwhile to uh, accept that markets can fail and do fail in a lot of ways, not just in, um, not just in finance, but in pollution, healthcare in the US is another example. There are lots of them. And then secondly, quickly on just what should we, what should we do about it practically, I think um, I'm sort of in the Paul Volcker camp, uh, which I guess puts me on the left in some places, on the right in others. I think just trying to regulate these big institutions probably won't work in the end. They can always game the, in the end, the guys on Wall Street are smarter than the regulators. They paid a lot more, they've got big incentives to get around the regulations. Regulations might work for a few years. I think a better idea would be to try and split the financial system in two, which is what Volcker recommends. And you know, people talk about splitting the utilities from the uh, casino aspect. I think that's a good idea. It's not just Glass-Steagall back again. Glass-Steagall split up investment banking and uh, commercial banking. I, I, I don't really think there's anything wrong with Citigroup selling shares 
for it, to its clients or doing corporate underwritings for, um, for its clients. That doesn't seem to me where the conflict of interest is or the risk. The risk is on the proprietary side, um, proprietary trading and um, risk-taking, basically. seems to me if you want uh, access to customer accounts, be they uh, brokerage accounts or uh, retail banking accounts, you, should, you have to agree to be heavily regulated and have big capital requirements and basically guarantee that you're not going to blow up. And in return for that, there is an implicit taxpayer uh, guarantee. So you get a subsidy because you'll be able to uh, issue debt cheaply because the buyers of the debt know that you're guaranteed. So that would be the regulated side of the banking system. And then, you know, outside that, good luck. You know, you want to take risks, good luck to you. Uh, Goldman Sachs wants to go back to being an investment bank and uh, build their balance sheet up to a trillion dollars and gear up 40 to 1. Good luck to them. But the, the government has to say, we're just never going to bail you out. Um, to remove the implicit subsidy which is there now. And what would happen, I think, is that Goldman would find it very difficult, or any other bank would find it very difficult, raising funds to uh, gear up to 40 to 1. Because there was always the, there's always been a fallback that you know, the, if these things are too big to fail, the government will bail them out. So that's my potted version of what we should do. And as I say, it might sound radical, but I don't think Paul Volcker is a great radical, and it's basically his idea I'm stealing. So that's pretty much it. I've uh, explained how the world works, solved the problems, and I'm now willing to take questions. Thank you very much, um, John Cassidy, for um, a low-key presentation of something that we're dealing with, uh, which is of a momentous importance. Now, we'll, I'll ask uh, for three questions initially. We'll do it in batches of three. The gentleman there with his hand up. There. Look, you. Yes, there. Yes. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, I'm still not totally sure why the initial signals are wrong. I can see what the following how the following behavior works, but I can't see uh, why the signals are initially wrong. And coupled with that, my... You're talking about financial markets. It seems to me that the sorts of things you're talking about don't happen in all kinds of markets. Could you comment on which kinds of markets you would expect these sorts of things to happen in and why it happens in those sorts of markets and not in others? Sure. Another question? Yes. Do you want to just wait for the microphone? I apologize if I missed the distinction, but I really didn't understand your distinction between your category of greed and rational irrationality. In the sense of all the arguments you gave us, you gave examples of individuals who made the choice rationally because it was in their personal short-term self-interest. I trade and as if it can sell it in a profit in three months it was worth doing, or if I, I'll get fired from my job as chief executive of Citibank if I don't do this. Right. So in that sense, the market failure was simply an externality in the same way pollution is. You don't have to bear the costs. Right. Um, as you can do your things that in your personal short-term interest and all the examples you gave were personal they could be status greed or financial greed so I really don't understand the distinction I'm afraid okay would you like to that that? okay I'll take those two um, first one uh, well I'll deal with the second one um, 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I am essentially arguing that there are externalities in the financial sector. Um, I, would, I guess I would argue that the externalities arise because of the, this rational irrationality problem. But sure, that's what we've seen. I mean, who would care? Nobody cares if the General Motors screw up. Well, they do. General Motors is a bad example. Debenhams or Topshop or something. Because if they go under, um, it doesn't matter to the rest of the economy. There are obviously, you're exactly right, there are externalities in banking. Uh, if the banking sector goes down because the rest of the economy depends on it for credit, it's an enormous problem. So that's, that's why it's a, that's the rationale for a public policy intervention, just the same as in global warming or whatever. All I'm arguing is what's the source of that, um, that externality, or what, what, how does the behavior come about which generates it, and that's where I'm making this argument about rationally rationality. Um, sorry, the other one, how do, the, how do markets get things wrong to begin with? Um, I don't have an answer to that question. Um, you know, why does the stock, why did tech stocks move beyond, um, you know, realistic bounds? I, it's obviously something to do with speculation, but why the initial, why the initial market um, imperfection arises, I don't know. My argument is more about how once you get, maybe it's random, who knows, once you get prices out of whack, the free market argument is, which Milton Friedman put forward in 1953, is that you know, the rational speculators come in and sell it back down to a fundamental value. What, I, what I'm arguing in the book is that, I have a chapter called The Rational Herd, that if you're, it's often in the fund manager or a hedge fund manager's interest more to surf the bubble. And I think there's a lot of evidence of that, I mean, a lot of people who work for hedge funds, and uh, I think you know they are, they are always on the lookout for. They've got every hedge fund now as a momentum fund. Um, for example, what they're doing is riding short-term movements. And if everybody in the market, or the preponderance of weight of money in the market, is riding short-term movements rather than looking for fundamental value, it seems to me small deviations from you know efficient prices can get blown up out of all proportion. A recent example: the oil market. You know, why did the price of oil go from $40 a barrel to $200 a barrel? I guess you can make the argument that there were sort of geological findings, or, but I don't think it's a very strong one. I think you know, it, it started going up a bit, and everybody thought there's going to be a big oil price increase. So there was a big oil price increase because the speculators all moved in in these exchange-traded funds, so prices went up. So that, that's my answer to that one. And um, which part of the market? Yeah, as I say, I, which part of the economy is subject to market failure? Well, there are different types, obviously, different types of market failure and different types of the, of the, of the economy. Um, I'm not suggesting, you know, the market for restaurants or hotels or sporting goods or films or any of those are, are failing. I think most straightforward homogenous products, the market does a pretty good job of supplying them. You can argue about, you know, whether it's ultimately worthwhile or whatever, but I think the market does a good job there and should be left up to get on with it. Um, there are just uh, there are markets where there are externalities, then you need some intervention, and there are markets where speculative markets. Obviously, I think you need government intervention. Um, so yeah, it's not a. Uh, I'm not suggesting Marks and Spencers need regulated um, heavily. Anybody else? Um. It's quite compelling your idea about Chuck Prince right. kind of dancing, but 
why is it that Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein weren't dancing in the same way? Uh, I think they were just better dancers, actually. <laughs> Goldman Sachs were. Goldman Sachs Asset Management um, did, were big uh, securitizers of subprime assets. And um, the, Goldman is just, you know, they were smarter. At the end of 2006, David Vinier, the uh, chief financial officer at Goldman, they noticed that the subprime market was starting to crack a bit and they noticed that some of their trading desks were starting to make some losses and they have a very good risk management function at Goldman so they called them all in and said you know what's the source of this and the traders I'm sure said oh it's nothing you know we'll be, we'll be making a fortune again next week but the risk management side of the firm decided that it was getting too risky and they did some fundamental analysis I guess and looked at the housing market and so because already by then in some markets prices were starting to fall in California and Florida and they took a decision as a firm to draw back on the asset management side and then being Goldman they also said well we might try short in the market as well on the proprietary trading side um, it was a relatively small bet by their standards but um, you know at the same time they were still selling their clients subprime securities uh, in lesser numbers than before but you know the trade that was the famous Chinese wall the uh, you know the the trader, the Goldman Sachs asset management guys were out on roadshows for subprime securities and the guys in New York were uh, shorting the same securities. So they were smarter. Um, Diamond and, um, and, and uh, sorry, JP Morgan Chase, yeah, I mean, they were, they were a bit more conservative. There, there's no doubt about it. They took risks in other areas. They've got massive um, commercial real estate holdings. So if the commercial real estate market cracks, JP Morgan Chase is in big problems. They didn't, unlike Citi and a lot of the other banks, they didn't buy, or like HSBC, they didn't buy a big subprime lender back in 2002 or 2003. Most of these big banks, that's how they made their mistake. They, uh, they bought a big subprime lender. Uh, I think HSBC bought household, was it, whatever, and uh, Citi did too. So yeah, there was, there was better management. I mean, you know, there's some, there's, they, uh, yeah, as I say, I think, you know, there's good dancers and bad dancers. There's yeah. a question up there, I think. Uh, um, yes, um, You've given, a, a, I think, a convincing explanation of how liquidity crises can come about through rational irrationality. I'm wondering if there are other types of crises that uh, you think can also come about in this way, and, and if so, what would they be? It's um, a good question. I haven't really applied it to other parts of the economy. Um, I mean, I, I think, you mean, you mean a financial crisis? Or other? Yeah, I think it Well, I mean, I think it applies generally in the financial markets. Any traded or opaque product where the price is not immediately obvious, I think there's scope for, um, you know, there's scope for gaming it and there's scope for riding the bubble. So, but also, you know, there's a lot of other areas where this sort of, I mean, rationality, rationality is basically a version of the sort of prisoner's dilemma. I don't know if you guys are game theorists, but you know, the prisoner's dilemma, which I devote a chapter to, should be taught. I mean, I, I was taught in my first lecture in Oxford because the professor there um, was just a good professor, I guess, but a lot of people aren't taught it. But it does, it gives you the other side of the invisible hand. It's perfectly rational behavior which leads to a bad collective outcome because you can't coordinate on the good outcome. And I think there are lots of aspects of that. For example, uh, pharmaceuticals. Why do pharmaceutical, in, why do pharmaceutical uh, companies advertise so much and spend more money on advertising than they do on um, 
than they do on research and development. I think it's hard to it's hard to answer that question unless you think of them competing <coughs> against each other. Because you know it costs a fortune. It's not very effective. The shareholders would love them to slash the advertising budgets, but GSK can't do it. Can't do it while um, you know Aventis or whoever is doing it, and they can't get together and agree on it. Because if everybody, even if there's a sort of, it's like you know, it's just like a classic price war. If everybody thinks everybody else is going to do it, then of course, what should you do? You should double your advertising budget because then you'll have a you'll have an advantage. So, in terms of game theory, the dominant strategy is to do the, do the worst thing, i.e. spend too much. Um, it's a sort of reverse, reverse of what happens in the airline sector where everybody converges on loss-making prices. Yeah. What do you think about bailing out policy? Is there a Sorry about what? Bailing out Oh, bailing out. Yeah. So, is there a categorical answer whether yes or no? Does it depend from case to case? Yeah, um, I, I'm one of the, um, you know, few people who, have to, who actually have defended the administration and in UK too. I, I think things were so serious that there was no choice for the, but for the bailout. Um, now, you can argue that it was badly structured. I think the Americans, the British probably did it better. They took big equity stakes. The Americans gave sweetheart deals to all the banks. So I think you can make the criticism that it was badly structured, the bailout. But I think it was the right thing to do, just because there are these externalities. I mean, I was out in Chicago a few weeks ago talking to some of the free market guys out there, and their argument is, what the hell? We should just let them all go bankrupt. In two or three weeks, the bankruptcy courts would have come in and sold all the underlying assets, and the economy would have come back quickly. Maybe they're right, but I'm glad we didn't try that as a social experiment. Uh, we tried it in 19 <laughs> we tried it in the 1930s uh, on a more limited scale, where the Fed let the American banking system basically collapse, and it didn't work out very well then. So I think Bernanke and um, Paulson eventually did the right thing. As I say, I think you know. The actual TARP itself uh, was, a, was badly structured, and they should have got, you know, they should have got driven a much harder bargain. The UK government drove a much harder bargain. Therefore, the government basically owns, you know, Lloyd's and well, owns RBS, owns most of Lloyd's as well. But the US, for probably political reasons, didn't do that. But I think the principle of a bailout. I mean, I know there's still a recession, but. The actual economy in the U.S. anyway has already had one quarter of growth. There's going to be a quarter of growth this uh, this quarter. It seems to me that you know technically is not no longer a recession. And if you'd have said to everybody, or taken a poll in here or any group of people a year ago, will the U.S. economy be out of recession this time next year? You'd have got overwhelming no, especially among um, economists. I mean, the consensus on Wall Street was going to be a long and deep recession. Now we may have a double dip, in which case I'll revise my opinion. But uh, so far, it seems to me to be in a pretty well-run rescue package. Just, I'm not saying it's nice. I mean, you know, I, I hate these bankers suddenly making massive bonuses as much as everybody else. But just, it's not always right to do the popular thing. And I think the government did what was necessary. Yeah. Um, should there not be a should there not be a limit on the size of institutions then? Um, because 
if they are too big to fail, it's um, well, yeah, I think they, they, I think they should be. I mean, my argument would be if you had the split that I detailed between the sort of utilities and the uh, and the uh, risk takers, I think that would effectively put a limit on the size of the institutions because I think the people outside the government safety net would face enormous capital costs raising money because everybody, the, the risk would be transparent and uh, they'd end up slimming down. And in the other sector, it wouldn't really matter if they, they, were, they, they wouldn't be going to fail anyway. They'd have a sort of explicit government guarantee. Uh, there'd need to be some regulation. They, they would be subject to big capital requirements, though. So, yeah, I think they should be split up. But, I mean, there should be a limit, but I, I think there are cleverer ways than just saying, you know, once your balance sheet's at 500 billion, you have to, you have to, you have to slim it down. Can I ask a question, uh, John? Um, you mentioned oil uh, and yep. the volatility of oil price. Uh, it seems to me that um, we're now observing momentum game playing in commodities right. on a scale that wasn't seen up to, say, three years ago. Right. Uh, up to three years ago, you could explain the price of aluminium, freight rates, oil, wheat, and so forth all by the, the supply and demand for the underlying commodity. Right. Uh, from about the middle of the decade, that ceased to be the case as pension funds were encouraged by their managers, uh, fund managers, to invest in, in commodities as um, the investment banks started setting up index funds of commodities, playing the game of momentum trading around those right. benchmarks. Um, I know that in this country we are thinking of, of, um, very carefully about what to do about this. Where right. to? Yeah, um, tax idea. Well, I was thinking actually more uh, since we're talking about commodities and the contamination of commodity prices, which is actually right. quite dangerous right. uh, because it has an immediate impact on um, the consumer price index sure. and therefore monetary policy and, and decision making right. by central banks. So my question is. Um, I understand that the issues are being addressed by Congress and in the States, but I haven't heard of anything that's right. come out in, in the form of a ban or something like a ban. What, no, it, 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 there's very little political constituency for, um, for that in the US. It's, it is a bit of a mystery why that is, because everybody hates high gas prices. But uh, I don't think the argument has been made strongly enough in the US that it was a bubble caused by you know, the exchange-traded exchange funds, as you, um, as you suggested. There is actually, as you say, a lot of empirical evidence for that now. Um, but most people, I think, in the US still blame OPEC or something. Um, and it, it's, it's always a mystery in the US why everybody hates high oil prices. Wall Street's incredibly unpopular. Yet Congress can't you know, re-regulate Wall Street or <laughs> or take action against, um, against higher oil prices. American political system is not very efficient <laughs> at sort of aggregating populist concerns in, in that area. Now whether that's the power of the lobbyists or whether it's just the timidity of the administration, I, I don't know. But you saw with Geithner the other day when Gordon Brown even raised the idea of a uh, anti-speculation tax. You know, they just poo-pooed it immediately. Even now, given all we've been through. I think that's the big difference between the UK and the US, incidentally. I think in the UK, people are so angry that the power of the city as a sort of lobbying body has, uh, has been diminished. And even, you know, you've got 
Gary Irving and the head of the FSA, you know, raising very fundamental questions about what size the financial sector should be and um, what its social utility is. In the US, you don't have that really. Wall Street is still, even after all this, uh, it's very, very difficult to get a congressman, even a Democratic congressman, to stand up and uh, make criticisms of Wall Street. And, th and that is the lobby to some extent? Or it it extent? must be the lobby, yeah. Mm. It must be. I mean, it, it, what else could it be? I mean, they... Um, and also, but it also the power of... the US, You know, if you talk to people like, say, Larry Summers or Geithner, they were, it would be a mercantilist argument too. This is where our comparative advantage is. We don't make cars anymore, you know. We don't, we don't dominate manufacturing. What we dominate is finance and obviously tech as well. But, you know, it's one of the great... If we give up this, you know, our, our competitive, if we give in to the British and the French and the Germans and Japanese, everybody else is going to pile on as a way of undermining U.S. economic power. So it's seen as a, as I say, it's a mercantilist argument. This is where we dominate. We can't do anything to it. It's our great export earner, source of great wealth. We can't do anything against it. And that, as I say, it's surprising, and I don't have any explanation for it, but that's a difference, I think, between the U.S. and the U.K. two years later. Yeah. Uh, what sort of effect do you think the demutualization had right. on, on the city? And the, what role did the shareholders drive have? Yeah. It's a very good question. Uh, I don't, I'm not an expert on this because I've been living in the US for the last 15 years, but um, you know, the stuff I read by people like John Kay in the FT about how demutualization changed the ethos and the sort of in incentive structure in the building societies. I'm sure it must have played a role, sure, because it's the same, it's the same argument as securitization. You know, your time frame changes when you go from being a mutual assurance society to being a public company owned by stockholders who want, who want results every quarter. Um, I mean, it become you know then become agency problems as Dr. Woolley and others expanded. So I think it, it, yeah, it, it's an issue. I mean, how do you solve it? I guess is is the question, um, and I don't really have any answer for that. I'm sorry. Well, I don't know. I mean, you you could remutualize, I guess. I mean, what do you mean, buy out the shareholders? Uh, I mean, I guess you could have done six months ago very cheaply. Yeah, it's getting more expensive by the day. Uh, I don't know, they just don't seem, I mean it's the same in the US, you know, like uh, mutual life in New York, all these great old mutual assurances, whether it was just greed on the part of the directors, whether they can raise, whether they can't compete because they can raise money more cheaply as a public company, I don't know. Um, Dr. Woolley or somebody else may have a better explanation for it, but it would be, yeah, it would, it would I, I'd like to see somebody resurrect the Halifax Building Society as, you know, the Halifax Building Society of old. Uh, maybe these arguments for a sort of narrow banking system, you know, <coughs> they would be effectively old-style building societies. Um, so there is definitely, you know, it's a big issue, the, the culture of, of these financial companies. Just a couple more questions. Yes, or in fact, there are two down here. Uh, yeah, I just wondered that... Uh, your book kind of suggests that uh, because it's rational, uh, that somehow or other people are actually very, very intelligent who are involved in a lot of this. <laughs> and aren't we perhaps actually giving them too much uh, credit for that? 
And in reality, a lot of the people that are involved in the financial markets are not particularly intellectually bright, but you know, they're just quick at seeing one or two things happen in price movements and things like this. And really, uh, the, the kind of intellectual capital that is right. being uh, allowed for them is actually not really there, but it's um, used to justify high salaries and things like this. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, I, you know, I've reported on financial markets for longer than I can remember now, 20 years. Um, I think there are some bright people, and they are right, and you know, not everybody is very smart. The question is, if they're just all stupid, why did it blow up now? You know, uh, stupidity seems to me to be a—it's like greed. It's an ever-present. Doesn't explain the particular crisis we've been in now, um, and it just seems to me, you know, that. Um, if, you, if everybody's stupid, then they're going to all act in random ways anyway. What you had here was some sort of systematic bad behavior. Uh, everybody's in the same market, everybody's copying everybody else. I think to explain sort of systematic behavior involving, you know, the biggest financial institutions in the world, just saying they were all stupid um, or they all were suffering from, you know, some sort of behavioral economics tick like myopia. I think that played a, that certainly played a bit of a role, but it seems to me there was a stronger economic force driving it and that was self-interest and the profit motive so but no I'm not I mean you know obviously I'm drawing distinctions more sharply because I'm casting in terms of an argument because there are other economists and journalists who've written books saying this was all just animal spirits um, so but I, I think that played a role but I think the predominant role was this rationally rationality um. Sorry. Some of the most effective economies in terms of productivity and efficiency are in Scandinavia, yep. where redistribution is very high, equality is very high, and uh, mar markets are deeply embedded within society and social norms. Right. Um, within that context, do you really think that uh, markets and just price signals alone, and even maybe regulation alone, is what is needed, or is it more fundamental reassessment of how humans relate to one another? Um, that's obviously a very deep question. Um, I mean, the Scandinavian model, you're right, has produced high productivity, high living standards. Even the Swedes were sort of forced to go into, you know, a sort of Thatcherite experiment because the, uh, you know, the public sector they decided it got too big, it's not worked out very well. I think. You know, I don't disagree with you, but is, you know, what's the practical implications of your of your question? You know, you can call people in Anglo-Saxon countries like the UK and the US. Um, it's all very well calling for people to you know be less selfish or less orientated towards materialism or short-term gain or whatever. But the fact is, these are societies we've been sort of bequeathed to us, and. Um, you know, if you can figure out a, out a way to make people act in different ways, then, you know, good luck to you. Um, it just, I am trying, as I say, I don't disagree with you necessarily on an, an emotional or sort of intellectual thing, but I'm trying to make a, a more modest critique that even within the logic of the system as it exists, there are some contradictions and um, some things that can be changed. So I think, it, you know, we're, I'm not saying you're wrong, but to me it doesn't seem to be a particularly sort of um, practical policy program. Anybody else?
Um, I would like to come back to the um, prisoner's dilemma and the conflict you pointed out between dom the dominant strategy yeah. and the market efficiency. Um, so um, obviously we need a new um, incentive structure uh, to overcome this um, inferior outcome of the prisoner's dilemma. Um, how would you suggest, uh, so uh, what would you suggest, what, uh, how, how should this post-crisis um, incentive system look like right. and who should design it? Um, I mean, I don't, as I, say, I don't want to get bogged down in the details. Um, the argument for it, for it, in any prisoner's dilemma, especially a multi-person one, there has to be an, ex, an external force. You know, you need some coordination, co coordination device which the market is not providing. So it ha I think that has to be the government. Nobody, there has to be some external force can make everybody coordinate on the good outcome. So that, the principle, as I said, this is a book about principle, it's not about individual cases. Then the second question is, okay, if we agree that the markets coordinate on a bad structure, you know, what's the particular better one? That, I don't, you know, I couldn't answer immediately. I mean, I, you know, I, I agree with the suggestions that people should be, on Wall Street should be paid in terms of long-term compensation. Uh, Short-term stock options are about, you know, they should be paid in terms of options that don't vest for five or ten years. Now, you talk to people on Wall Street and some of them agree with you, and Lloyd Blankfein, we've mentioned him as, you know, given speeches saying this, but Goldman, of course, haven't done it because they can't do it by themselves. That's, again, the logic of the prison's dilemma, because if you do it by yourself, you're just asking somebody else to exploit you. If Goldman says tomorrow that, you know, it's going to pay all its bankers in stock that doesn't, uh, just long-term stock, they already have some long-term stock, but if they're going to lock them up even more, Guys, you know, the people are going to start defecting to Morgan Stanley. Uh, there's always going to be a comp competitive race to the bottom. So that's why I think the government has to sort of set some standards. And it is, it is starting to happen. The Fed has said it's going to issue a whole set of guidelines. They haven't come out yet, so we we'll just have to wait and see what they are. But I think, again, it's an intellectual thing. I think the idea that you need, if you'd have said five years ago, we need the government to help coordinate on good pay structures on Wall Street, you know, you'd have been laughed out of town. Now you have the uh, head of the Federal Reserve saying that. That seems to me to be a big change as a result of uh, what's happened. Okay, well, uh, there's just one last question here. in those places and right. effectively you're creating a sort of regulation refugees is no, there anybody that could operate well obviously it has to be done on an international basis I mean I think I think obviously you know if you're a city lobbyist you're going to say well you introduce any uh, compensation structures we're all going to move to Curacao I think uh, or you know the Isle of Man I, I think if the US and the UK got together there are economies of scale and everything these guys need to be in New York and London they could call Wall Street's bluff and say, you know, you, if you don't like it, then move. I don't think many of the big banks, where would they move to Frankfurt? Well, the Germans would probably come along as well. Um, Tokyo, Japanese would definitely come along. I think if four or five of the major financial centers could agree on a minimal set of reforms, it wouldn't necessarily minimal, it could be maximal, just a set of reforms, they could then face down the, um, you know, everybody will move out and just call their bluff. Because as they say, I think they need to be in these financial centers. Okay, well, we probably ought to draw to a close now. Um, John has um, spoken with great authority. Uh, he's, as he said, covered 20 years of reporting on economic and financial affairs. 
and meeting some of the top policymakers, bankers, and, and academics. I'm slightly alarmed to hear his encounter with one academic who thinks it was actually the real economy that caused the, uh, the crisis. But um, thank you very much. Please, all of you, join me in, in thanking uh, John for the. Uh, thank you. Thank you.